Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Now, Father, as I've prayed many times before, I pray yet again that you would stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, those things you would have us know, say, and do. God, would you be so kind as to magnify yourself, convict where appropriate, challenge where appropriate, encourage where appropriate, but ultimately change us into your image with the seed of your word fall on good ground and take root. Save someone's soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Pastor, what time I need to be done? Don't tell me that. You're like, okay, there it is. Reminds me of the time, I think I told you just last time I was here, I preached at a Presbyterian church in Charlotte, and the same thing I asked the pastor. He said, oh, dear brother, we are a spirit-filled, spirit-led church. Time means nothing here. But the people leave at 12. <laughs> so I'm going to be real sensitive uh, to you all. We'll work within that framework. Many of us in this room, we have read the great Ernest Hemingway classic, The Old Man and the Sea. Um, and in this classic, we are introduced to a protagonist by the name of Santiago, who is the old man, who decides one day to go fishing out at the sea. Here is Santiago. He's fishing out at sea, and for 84 consecutive days, he catches nothing. Now, parenthetically, I don't know about you, but if I'm out there for 84 minutes and I ain't caught nothing, the Lord ain't in it, let's pack up, let's take it somewhere else. 84 straight days, he fishes and catches nothing. But on the next day, the 85th day, Santiago lands and catches the mother load of all fish. It's the biggest fish he's ever caught in his life. It, it is a marlin. As he's got this thing on the hook, he's thinking to himself, now my existence is justified. Wait till they see me back at shore. I'm going to get the attention and the accolades that have long eluded me. Now I'm really somebody, but there's a problem. The problem is Santiago is an old man and he doesn't have the strength, the resources, the wherewithal, the capacity to reel this fish into the boat. And so what does he decide to do? He decides to tie this big marlin next to the boat, take his spear, run it through, but now we encounter a greater problem. Because blood is leaking out of this marlin as he is going back to shore. Sharks now smell the blood and they begin eating away at the marlin to the point where when Santiago pulls up at the shore, he has nothing to show for his labors but a skeleton. The greatness that was his for a few fleeting moments is gone. It's at this moment now where Hemingway scholars tell us that the old man and the sea written close to the end of Ernest Hemingway's life is actually Ernest Hemingway turning the pen on himself. Hemingway scholars tell us that this book is really autobiographical. It is Ernest Hemingway peering through the rearview mirror of his life and writing of himself. Here is a man that in his life had 
had checked all the big boxes one can seemingly check. Wealth, check. Fame, check. Romance, check. These are the big fish, the big marlins of our world. And yet towards the end of his life, he's practically broke. He's on the precipice of financial ruin. Towards the end of his life, he's been married and divorced more times than one can count. Towards the end of his life, he's overwhelmed with depression to the point where he would would commit suicide. But Ernest Hemingway is trying to communicate both by his pen and by his life is there is no lasting significance in this world. That there is nothing in this life that can truly scratch you where your souls itch. But Christ and Christ alone. Our text, hear it now, is all about greatness. Please notice that Jesus Christ never once critiques the desire for greatness. I think it's a part of the Imago Dei of being born in the image of God that all of us aspire to leave our mark. I think that's a good thing. We want to count. We want to matter. This is a good thing. I I believe it is a God thing. The problem is where we choose to go fishing. Our text is all about greatness. Jesus again says in verse 11, truly I say to you, no one born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. The the idea of greater there, in the original language Greek, it's the idea of extent. It's really in a line of trees. It's the tallest tree. It's the biggest lake. It's the the fastest car. It's it's the idea of, of significance. It's the idea of greatness. And again, Jesus does not critique that at all. He's talking about what it takes to be the goat, the greatest of all time. Now, I know some of you are bristling at this, Brian. This feels awfully narcissistic for me to aspire to greatness. Maybe you are thinking of, uh, uh, of Muhammad Ali. By the way, Ken Burns just came out with a four-part documentary on Muhammad Ali. If you haven't seen it, please seen it. see it. Here's Muhammad Ali, the self-proclaimed greatest of all time. And something in you bristles when you hear me talk about greatness because you're thinking of the narcissism of Ali. It seems like every week we, we have the goat conversation. Who is the greatest of all time when it comes to basketball? And your pastor is a godly man, but he commits blasphemy when he says LeBron James is the greatest of all time. Those who are truly redeemed know that it's Michael Jordan. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And here's your pastor talking about LeBron being the greatest, and he's got on Jordans. Go figure. We're on the heels of the Olympics, and I think Simone Simone Biles has lengthened the conversation of the goat, hasn't she? She's shown us that greatness isn't just your performance, it's advocating for your mental health. It's standing in the crowds, uh, uh, cheering on your, your teammates. She's lengthened the conversation of really what it means to, to be great. Yet again, Jesus is talking about greatness, and he has... No qualms with us aspiring for greatness. It's where we're looking for it. In fact, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you and I commit our lives to him and measure our life by the metrics of the kingdom of heaven and not the metrics of this world, we will attain true goat status. 
and live the most satisfying life one could ever live. And we will leave our mark for all of eternity. But where is true greatness found? I want to give you four places we all look for greatness that our text shows us. But greatness cannot be found in these four places. And then I want to end with the only true place where greatness can be found. As our text opens up, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, is in jail. Why is he in jail? He is embroiled in the greatest kind of political scandal of his day. Herod, who is king of the Jews, uh, you might be a little cons- uh, you know, confused because Rome is in charge, but what do you mean Herod is king of the Jews? Well, the Romans allowed the Jews a measure of power under their authority, so Caesar said, okay, uh, Herod, under my authority, I'll allow you to retain the title and some function of being king of the Jews. Well, here is Herod, and Herod is an immoral man, and Herod, in the political scandal of his day, seduces away his own brother, brother's wife. He takes his sister-in-law, causing the divorce of her marriage to his brother, and and he ends up marrying his former sister-in-law. Scandalous. John the Baptist cannot sit by and just idly look at such immorality. John the Baptist has the prophetic fortitude to call out immorality in their political leaders. My, my, my. Sounds like I could preach a little bit on that one. I'm not calling us to to align with the political party. The kingdom of God is way too big for donkeys or elephants. If your gospel fits neatly in a political party, your gospel is too small. God doesn't call us to align with political parties. But we ought to be able to speak truth to power. We ought to be able to point out the immorality of Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. The gospel we preach is an equal opportunity abuser. So here's John. He calls out the immorality of Herod. Herod then throws him in jail. And here is John the Baptist in jail. And Jesus says, greatest of all time. What this text points to is is that greatness can never be found in my situation or circumstances. John the Baptist is in jail, convicted, and Jesus says it doesn't get any greater than that. A couple weeks ago, I picked up the phone and called a dear friend of mine who's going through a really hard time. Um, Here they are, they have lost their job, Um, they've got family issues, they're on the brink of homelessness, They're in financial torments. And I'm just calling to check in, how's it going? And it hasn't gotten better. And here she is saying to me, in the middle of just saying how things have gotten worse, she's saying, but in the middle of it all, we have learned, Brian, this valuable lesson that circumstances are a horrible foundation to build your life on. Someone needs to hear that. Greatness is not tied into the state of your marriage. Greatness is not tied into whether or not your kids follow Jesus. Greatness is not tied into whether or not you are married. Greatness is not tied into the doctor's report. Greatness is not tied into the letters or lack thereof behind your name. 
Greatness is not tied into your financial portfolio or lack thereof. Your situation and circumstance is no commentary on true greatness. But I want to push this a little further. Here is John, the cousin of Jesus, and he's sitting in jail, and he summons his disciples, and he says, look, I I need you to get to Jesus, because I've got a question. Listen to the question. John the Baptist says, I need you to ask him, are you the one, or should we look for another? He wants to know, are you the true Messiah? And you want to go, wait a minute, John. Cousin of Jesus. Some of us remember the story. His mother, Elizabeth, pregnant with John, goes to visit Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus. And when John, in utero, senses the presence of the Messiah in utero, starts doing cartwheels and backflips. And now he's saying, are you the one? Wait a minute, John, you baptized Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, you were there when the heavens opened up. You heard God say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now you're filled with doubt. Come on, go with me, somebody. I think there's two or three of us in here who know. I don't care how much Bible college you have. I don't care how much seminary training you may have. I don't care how long you've gone, been going to church. I don't care how many Bethmore Bible studies you've done. I don't care how many BSFs you've done. You can have all the information in the world, but there are some times when life will come at you fast and things will hit you and you find yourself saying, are you the one? I wish I had someone be honest with me. God, I'm going through hell and high water in my marriage, and I want to know, are you who you say you are? God, I've been praying for this boy all my life. I haven't been the perfect father, but he's out in the far country. Are you the one? God, I've got prostate cancer. I've got breast cancer. Are you the one? God, I've been faithfully giving my money and tithing, and yet there's too much month at the end of the money. Are you the one? And I love it. Not once does he scold John the Baptist for his doubts, which means God can handle your doubt. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. In fact, I want to just say to you, if there is no doubt, there can be no faith. Faith is not certainty. It doesn't take faith for me to say two plus two equals four. That's a mathematical fact. It does not take faith for me to say, if I jump in the air, I will hit the ground. That is the law of gravity. But it does take faith for me to trust someone I don't see in the middle of dark situations and circumstances. It does not make you less of a Christian to say, are you the one? It does make you less of one to stop walking in the valleys of life. I want to push this just a little further. Hey, disciples, come here. I've got a question. I need you to ask Jesus, are you the one? Look at Jesus' response. In our text, he says to them in verse 4, and Jesus answered them, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. Now, what he is about to say, most scholars tell us, is loosely based on the first sermon Jesus ever preached. If you get nothing else I say, get this. The first sermon Jesus ever preaches is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. Look at it with me on the screen. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, liberty, liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty, 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 those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, scholars again tell us that what Jesus says in our text is loosely based on that, but he leaves one thing out. Look at the similarities and look at what's missing. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Watch it and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus, why would John be offended by you? Because look what he left out. The part about captives being set free. Here's what he's saying. John, I am the one. And no, your situation will not change. I am exactly who I say I am, and no, you ain't getting out of jail. No, I didn't think you'd shout on that. Because what Jesus is doing here is preaching the eulogy of prosperity theology. Prosperity theology is equation theology. Do good over here, get good outcomes over here. Tithe over here, be financially prosperous over here. Uh, Walk by faith over here, clean bill of health over here. Prosperity theology is idolatry because it does not seek God for who he is. It seeks the benefits package. But there are times when the equation will not work out. There are times when you will be generous over here, but poor over here. There will be times when you walk by faith over here and lose your job over here. And you will find yourself saying, God, where are you? And Jesus says, I am exactly who I say I am. Will you still worship me when the benefits package does not work out? We follow Jesus because he's worthy. And if he does nothing else for us, he did enough on the old rugged cross. When he stretched out his hands and died for us, that's enough. So why are you following him? John, I'm everything that was ever ever prophesied about me, and no, you ain't getting out of jail, and that's how John dies. Greatness cannot be found in my circumstances, but greatness cannot be found in my status. Jesus then turns to the crowd and he says to them in verse 7, he began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. 
Back then, you saw a person with soft clothing. You saw a person dressed in wonderful garments. You go, that person is associated with the king, and therefore, they have status. Jesus says, that ain't John. John didn't have status. Well, what did John look like? Matthew 3, 4 tells us, look at it with me. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, Pastor Derek has, is it five daughters or four? Four daughters. Bless your ministry. Imagine John the Baptist shows up at Pastor Derek's house and says, hey, Pastor Derek, I've been hanging out with one of your daughters, and Pastor Derek's looking at him, and John looks a bit disheveled. He's got bedhead. He's wearing a garment of camel's hair, leather belt. His breath ain't too fresh. He's been eating locusts and wild honey. He says, I'm here because I'd love to marry one of your daughters. I've been hanging out with this daughter, and Pastor Derek, that's funny. I've never heard of you before. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Where's your church? Well, we don't have a building yet. We're not blessed like you. We we meet in the middle of the wilderness. Well, well, where do you live? I I really don't have a home. I I kind of live near my church in the middle of the wilderness. Pastor Derek then Googles him and finds out this guy's a convicted felon. He's going to jail. Chances are Pastor Derek's going to be like, God bless your ministry. But no, you can't marry my daughter. Undeterred, he comes back a couple weeks later. This time he brings his cousin. His cousin vouches for him and says, look, I'm 33 years old. And Pastor Derek asks more about him. Well, tell me, cousin, tell me some more about you. I'm 33 years old, uh, single, never been married. I'm, I'm homeless. I've been rejected by most. In a few days, I'm going to the cross. But I can vouch for this guy here. You ought to say yes. Pastor Derek's going to be, are you kidding me? Get out of here. Nothing about them says status. And yet they're the two greatest to have ever lived. Oh, I tell you, some of you have bought the world's lie, hook, line, and sinker. You think something special because you live in a certain neighborhood. You've bought a certain house. You drive a certain car. The Bible says naked we come into this world and naked we shall return. You ain't taking none of that stuff with you. I'm going to die one day and I'll be very dead and my wife will sit on the front row at my funeral and she'll cry a few tears until she thinks about the life insurance policy and she'll probably spend it on the next dude, which she has specific instructions not to. I will come up out of this bad boy if you do that. But I ain't taking none of it with me. And yet... Every weekend, throngs of people go up and down the magnificent mile because they think their identity is tied into shoes and purses and watches and status. Oh, Renewal Church, you must shake your fist in the midst of a culture and the magnificent mile, and you must say, that stuff does not define us. Greatness is not found there. Greatness is not found in my circumstances. It's not found in my status. But thirdly, listen closely, greatness is not found in religion. God has authorized four biographies on the life of his son, Jesus. 
We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're new to the scriptures, this is a great place to start, but, but what are the differences between the Gospels? There's many. One of them are the audiences in whom they're written. God says, hey, Matthew, I want you to write a gospel to the Jews. Now, this is peculiar. The Jews were some of the most religious people to have ever walked the face of the earth. They were in church every week. They called it the Sabbath. They worshiped in the temple on high and holy days. They went back and forth from the temple all the time, uh, offering sacrifices to atone for their sins. The average Jew uh, memorized the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Torah. They memorized math, excuse me, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Leviticus. They memorized numbers in Deuteronomy. On average, they gave almost 20% of their annual income to to the things of God, and God says, write a gospel to these religious people, which means the gospel and religion are never to be confused. The gospel and religion are two completely different things. Religion says, I do. The gospel says it's done. Religion is works-driven. The gospel is grace-driven. Religion is about me. The gospel is about God. What this means is you can be religious as the day is long and be headed to hell. The gospel and religion are different, which means greatness cannot be found in religion. This is what Jesus gets to. In verse 16, he whirls on his heels and now talks to the audience about John. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. This is an idiom from his day when you went to a wedding and the DJ started playing the flute. That was your cue to wobble. It was your cue to electric slide. It was your cue to Cupid shuffle to the left. It was your cue to do that thing. Yet Jesus says, we, we came to you playing the flute. We came to you playing the dirge. That's an idiom from funerals. You played the dirge. That was your cue to cry. What is Jesus saying? We came to you bringing the gospel and you did not respond to gospel truth. Instead, with that bit of understanding, we're now to rightly divide divide one of the most complex verses in all of scripture. Verse 12, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What does this mean? In the context, it means this. The kingdom of heaven is being abused. And who is it being abused by? Not by irreligious people out in the clubs or at bars. It is being abused by religious people who come to church Sunday in and Sunday out but refuse to repent of their ways. They sprinkle just enough Jesus to be acceptable, but not too much to be fanatical. I'll explain it this way. Suppose I say to you, hey, I wanna bless your soul. Let's go out to Gibson's or some steakhouse. I wanna buy you a steak. It's on me. So you come and we sit down and the waiter says, can I take your order? you say, yeah, I, I want to have this filet. You order the mother load of all filets. I slap high five with you and I say, bless your heart. The waiter then says, how would you like this prepared? 
and you have the nerve to say, well done. Now, let me tell you, in a multi-ethnic church, most chocolate people, they're disturbed right now because most black folks, that's how we do steak. Well done. But I'm here to tell you, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm pleading with you. I'm giving you gospel truth. That cow did not die for you to burn it. I'm, I'm pleading with you. That's not how this experience is to go down. But, but you are resistant. I want it my way. I'm going to have it my way. That cow is suffering violence. Jesus says, I've come offering you the best way to live, the way to experience life, but you ain't responding. I can come to church and shack up with my boyfriend. I can come to church and be as greedy as the day is long. I can come to church and gossip and slander and gossip. I can come to church and consume and never serve in ministry. That's ordering the kingdom of heaven well done. Jesus says, if that's you, you are a religious person doing violence to the way of Jesus. Greatness cannot be found in circumstances. It cannot be found in status. It cannot be found in religion. Quickly, it, it cannot be found in other people's opinion of me. It cannot be found in acceptance. If that were the case, then Jesus and John would not be great. These two individuals were rejected, and yet the greatest of all time. So, as we land the plane, where's true greatness found? Verse 11, Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You want to go, really, Jesus? Like, really? What about Abraham, the father of our faith? Are you saying John the Baptist is greater than he? Yes. What about Moses, that legendary liberator and lawgiver? Are you saying John the Baptist is greater than he? Yes. What about David who ushered Israel into the golden age? Are you saying John the Baptist is greater than he? Yes. What about Elijah and Elisha, these prophets whose ministry was marked by the supernatural? John the Baptist's ministry wasn't marked by the supernatural. Are you saying he's greater than they? Yes. What about Esther? What about Ruth? Yes. What makes John the Baptist's ministry different from all others? For about 12 years, I pastored in the city of Memphis, and if you've ever watched the show, The First 48, it's a show about murders, Memphis oftentimes shows up on that show. A lot of crime, a lot of murders. But for all the murdering in the history of Memphis, there's only one murderer we know. His name is James Earl Ray. We don't know him because... He's extraordinary in and of himself. We, we don't know him because of the way he looks. We don't know him because of his wealth. We know him because of who he killed. He killed Martin Luther King Jr. 
And the greatness of his legacy, however awful it is, will linger on because it was never about him, but who his life was linked to. What makes John the Baptist the goat? It's not his preaching. It's not his prophesying. It's not the amount of people he baptized. What distinguishes him from every other character in the Bible is that his calling, his life, was inextricably tied to Jesus. He was the forerunner of Jesus. That's why Jesus says you can be the goat. If you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, you are greater than he. Why? Because your life likewise is linked to Jesus. If you want greatness... It ain't about money. If you want greatness, it ain't about what you drive. If you want greatness, it ain't about being single or married. It is who you are linked with. And Renewal Church, I want to encourage you on the occasion of your anniversary, never get so sophisticated in your ministries and programs that you tire of telling the old story. Jesus Christ and him crucified. If your life is linked to Jesus, you're the goat. You ought to have some swag in your step. You ought to throw your shoulders and head back because you are the greatest there ever was. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus. I pray for that man, that woman, that boy, that girl who is here under the illusion of salvation. But their life is not linked to you. I pray in the name of Jesus. There's some here who need to repent. They are genuine followers of you, but like all of us, we know what it's like to get off track and to get caught up in the marlins of this world. To think that if we can have that house or have that thing or have that job that that I'll be validated, I'll have a sense of self-worth is the greatest lie ever told. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. So I pray for those who need to repent. I pray that today, by your grace, you will allow your spirit to hit reset and to refocus our attention. But there are others, and maybe they don't know you. Oh God, I pray in the name of Jesus that they would link their lives to you, that they would know like all of us that we are woeful sinners We have accrued a debt with a holy God that can never be repaid. But Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. So I pray that by by grace, we would heed your calling and we would come to you. And I bless this church finally. That above all else, Renewal Church would be known for bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth, right here in Chicago. What does it mean to bring the kingdom? Two things. When Jesus came bringing the kingdom, he he came calling sinners to repent. 
I pray that as long as renewal exists, it will always be known as a church where people hear the message of the gospel and pass from death to life, they get saved. But secondly, when Jesus brought the kingdom, he, he healed folk, he fed folk. Oh God, I pray that renewal would do something about the tangible needs around them. That the school system is better because renewal was here. That poverty is being wiped out because renewal is here. That disparities in racial justice are, are being blotted out. That, that there's hope when people walk here. They see white people and Puerto Ricans and Asians and black folks and people from every nation, tribe, and tongue loving people because of the kingdom of heaven. So we pray in Chicago as it is in heaven through Renewal Church. Jesus' name we ask. Amen and amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.